Welcome to Nomadicate, a podcast all about exploring how different cultures, things, ideas, and even people shape and define our lives and our world. You're listening to your host, Katie DeVille, and today we're going to be exploring dope, dope, dopamine. We live in such a fast reward society with social media, entertainment in general, and the ability to access resources in such a short amount of time. Never in history have we been able to satisfy our needs and desires so quickly, and I've recently been thinking about our relationship with technology and pleasure. So in this episode, we're going to dive into what dopamine does to our brain and its relation to social media. Explore how advertisers and social media developers are using our biology against us and investigate Ikigai, Japan's secret for happiness and fulfillment. If you liked one of my previous episodes, please consider leaving a review. Remember the days of boredom, especially when we were kids? We used to find the simplest forms of entertainment and be somewhat content. For me, I used to look for rocks and draw in the dirt, but having that little bit of boredom periodically kind of sparked this curiosity, sense of adventure, and creativity in me. And I think I may be in the last generation to experience true boredom because technology has become so accessible and advanced since the early 2000s. Nowadays, we're layering multiple forms of pleasurable experiences throughout the day. We eat while we're scrolling through our phones looking at TikTok while we're watching TV. The days of boredom are gone, and I blame the smartphone and especially social media. There's hardly any moment when our phones aren't within reach, and it's hard to not constantly check social media updates throughout the day. Why? Well, it all boils down to dopamine. First off, what exactly is dopamine, and why do we need it? To really understand social media and its relationship with addiction, we have to ask these questions. Without getting into a little biology, we won't be able to understand how developers use our ancient biological predispositions to keep us scrolling. So hang in there with me. I'll try to answer the second question first. Why do we need dopamine? Evolutionarily speaking, Dopamine got our ancestors off their butts. Dopamine is responsible for not only pleasure, but it's responsible for motivation, drive, craving, time perception, and movement in all mammals. I'm getting the following information, unless otherwise stated, from the Huberman Lab podcast episode called Controlling Your Dopamine for Motivation, Focus, and Satisfaction. You can check out the link to this episode in my episode description. But Andrew Huberman is an associate professor of neurobiology at Stanford University, as well as a podcaster. And in that episode, Huberman gives a masterclass on dopamine and how it works in our brains. If you want to get into the nitty gritty of everything, definitely do check it out. It's really, really fascinating and very informative. But anyway, dopamine is how we track success and pleasure. If dopamine is low, we won't feel motivated. It can shift our energy, feelings of ability, and mindset. It stimulates sympathetic arousal, which is associated with the body's fight or flight response, exciting readiness, alertness, and the desire to pursue things outside of ourselves. In fact, dopamine, according to Huberman, is the universal currency for seeking and foraging. 
If you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, dopamine was critical to our species' survival and propagation. Dopamine drives us to pursue things that will not only provide pleasure in the short run, but it also drives us to obtain these things that have the potential to extend our species in the long run. Think about how important this must have been early on in human history. The circuits of dopamine have existed for tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years. So scientists really believe this is what made our ancestors get up, get out, and forage for food, shelter, mates, and other social relationships in potentially dangerous environments. It gave them an incentive to get up and get busy. Our survival really depends on pleasure, on seeking pleasure, getting that pleasure, having it go away, and then that quest to seek pleasure all over again. It's an internal loop, and that cycle that inspired our ancestors to get out, forage, and propagate is the same process that we have today going on in our brains. But we live in a totally different world from a person that lived, say, 10,000 years ago. And now, rather than seeking things that bring us long-term value— The world is designed on providing short-term pleasure, but we'll touch on that later. But our behavior is very much influenced by peaks in dopamine, also called phasic dopamine, and what scientists call baseline dopamine, also known as tonic dopamine. And they both interact with one another, affecting the way we feel and act. So let's dive into the biological world of dopamine, and let's explore what's going on subconsciously and driving our behavior. Okay, what exactly is dopamine, and how does it work in our brain? Well, from my understanding, dopamine is a neuromodulator. It affects the communication of many neurons. We're not going to go too deep into this, but neuromodulators are different from neurotransmitters because they diffusely project throughout the nervous system. They basically get spread out far and wide. They also regulate or adjust postsynaptic neurons. By postsynaptic neurons, I mean the nerve cells that receive neurotransmitters, and they do it in a way that changes the postsynaptic neuron's response to traditional neurotransmitters. But that's not super important, and don't worry about it. I just wanted to throw that out there for people who may find that interesting. What's important to know is that dopamine has two main pathways to communicate and exert all of its effects. One pathway is called the mesocorticolimbic pathway, And it's the classic reward pathway in all mammals. So it influences all the things I mentioned before with motivation, drive, and craving. This pathway travels from the bottom of our brain to our prefrontal cortex, which is located right behind the eyes and the forehead. Whenever we're pursuing a goal, really pursuing anything, we're using this pathway. And this is going to be important to remember later because we're going to look at how social media developers tap into our dopamine to unlock our motivations, which keeps us scrolling and engaged on apps. The other pathway is called the nigrostriatal pathway. It emerges from the midbrain and travels to the dorsal striatum. And you know what? I don't really know where the dorsal striatum's at. I looked it up and I think it also might be in the midbrain somewhere, maybe slightly more in front. But anyway, I don't think it matters. But this is the pathway in which dopamine affects movement. Whenever there's death or depletion of dopamine, it can lead to the loss of movement. In fact, this is how Parkinson's disease develops. But now that we've learned about the pathways, there's another thing to keep in mind. 
there are two spatial scales at which dopamine can operate, either synaptically or volumetrically. This can affect the baseline and the peaks in dopamine like I mentioned earlier. Okay, so what are these spatial scales and how do they relate to our happiness and motivation? By spatial scales, Huberman means there are two ways in which dopamine gets released to our bodies. The first is called local release, also known as synaptic release. One neuron influences another neuron by making it more or less electrically active. Dopamine can also be released on a broad scale, also known as volumetric release. Basically, dopamine gets dumped into the larger system and can reach more cells than at a local level. According to Huberman, this means that dopamine can change how our neural circuits work at a local and broad scale. And now we're about to get into the good part. Remember the baseline and the peaks? Well, whenever we experience something pleasurable, especially for the first couple of times, we have an increase in dopamine, also known as a peak. Peaks affect the baseline, which influences how we generally feel. The farther the distance between the peak and the baseline affects our feelings and moods. So imagine you're running in a race and you don't particularly think you're going to win. Suddenly, you find yourself way ahead of all the other contestants. You cross the finish line and you win first place. You're most likely going to be ecstatic because you just achieved something really impressive. The peak is significant. But then, after a couple of days, you start to realize you're feeling sad and you don't know why. This is because the peak in dopamine actually decreases your baseline dopamine, how you generally feel. It lowers the baseline below from where it was before the peak. This happens every time we experience something pleasurable. When I was younger, I would experience this all the time, especially during milestones such as dance recitals or after performing in musicals. After months of preparing, I'd be so excited to perform. But suddenly, after the show was over, even on the same night, I'd get super depressed. I would have this overwhelming sense of sadness and doom, and I didn't have a clue why. In the musical theater world, they call this post-show depression, and it's really common. But this happened again after other high moments in my life, like studying abroad and graduating. So whenever you're experiencing something similar, just know that you're having a drop in dopamine from the high you just experienced. Nothing's wrong with you. It's biological. And there's something called the pleasure-pain balance, where our minds crave the thing that caused us pain in order to achieve another peak in dopamine. Dr. Anna Limke, head of Addiction Dual Diagnostic Center at Stanford, was interviewed in another Huberman Lab podcast episode, and she really dove into this and its relation to addiction. But basically, how Huberman explains it, when we seek or indulge in something we like, there's pleasure but also subtle pain. And we experience that pain as wanting more of that thing. For example, pick your favorite indulgent candy. Candy is delicious, but it also tends to make us feel gross after eating it. But we still want to eat it, even though it's giving us a degree of pain. How does this work? Well, we've exerted all of our available dopamine on a huge peak, and there's not enough dopamine around to keep the baseline going. This is kind of a simpler explanation than Huberman gives, but if you want to dive deeper into the biology of it, 
I definitely suggest listening to his podcast episode because he's a much better person to learn that from. But anyway, back to the local and volumetric release of dopamine. They're all interconnected with the baseline and peaks, and it's important to be aware about because many drugs and supplements will actually affect how satisfying, pleasurable, or exciting we find an event or thing to be. Those drugs and supplements will often increase the volumetric release, affecting the peaks, as well as increase the local release of dopamine, which affects the baseline, from my understanding. If both the baseline and the peaks are increased, that means the distance between the two will be shorter, meaning you won't achieve more and more pleasure from things, according to Huberman. So these drugs and supplements that are supposed to make you feel happy or motivated, you may say are slightly misleading. But that was a little bit of a tangent. Where does social media come in and how does it relate to dopamine? Well, practically all of us use social media, and we're all somewhat aware of the positive and negative effects. As social creatures, we know that social media helps us be somewhat included in others' worlds, whether they're strangers, family members, or friends. By included, I mean that these platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and even TikTok let us peer into the lives of others. I hesitate from saying that social media makes us feel connected because it doesn't necessarily do that. Although these platforms allow interaction through direct messaging, comments, and likes, I doubt the majority of people actually feel a true, solid sense of community. But as humans, we're hardwired to seek out social interactions and connection, whether it's shallow or not. But social media is a great tool in some cases. As an artist and podcaster, it's really cool to think about the unlimited growth potential I have by using Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok to promote my music and podcast. And the same things that I'm about to criticize, like algorithms and social media as a whole, are the same things that I could tremendously benefit from. But I really think it's important for us, especially people even younger than I am, who don't really have any prior experience before social media, to understand how it's subconsciously controlling our minds and our behavior, all through dopamine. It's not witchcraft, it's science. And there are some very, very smart people within large corporations who want to make money and want to make their company money, like anyone else, but they're manipulating us. They're using our behavior to predict what motivates us, and they use something called intermittent reward schedules to keep us scrolling and scrolling for hours on end. Why? Do they want control of our minds? Yeah, because they want control of when we release dopamine. So it's a little bit like mind control, but it's really more of behavior control. Because social media is a business. TikTok is finding out what you like to keep you happy and entertained because the business itself is supported by ads. If you don't keep scrolling, you're not going to see ads by third-party companies that paid TikTok to place in your feed. You may feel like social media is free, but it's not. We're exchanging our time, attention, and behavior for the product of entertainment. And this exchange happens through the smartphone, obviously. But there's another dynamic that's going on behind that exchange. I watched the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which I'll reference to later on, but it gave a very profound perspective. 
Since advertisers are buying ad space on social media platforms, and social media platforms are selling that service to distribute the ad, our attention is the product. That means we're the product being sold to advertisers. We're being used. And we can't really talk about social media and its effects without mentioning smartphones, because they're the medium through which all of this is possible. They're so small and portable, and companies have the opportunity to exploit our attention almost 24-7. According to a Harvard University blog post entitled Dopamine, Smartphones, and You, written by Trevor Haynes, the American adult averages around two to four hours swiping, typing, and tapping their phone. That's over 2,600 daily touches. That's a lot, even through the course of a day. Imagine touching your phone that many times in one sitting over and over again. I guarantee that the majority of these interactions are unintentional. We've all found ourselves mindlessly scrolling through Instagram or TikTok, and the content isn't even that entertaining sometimes. In fact, a lot of the time, it's just stupid. In another Huberman Lab podcast episode, Huberman compares this compulsion or some would say addiction, to a dog digging a hole. Imagine your dog dug up something a few weeks ago in a specific spot in the yard, and now he's back at it digging the same hole because maybe, just maybe, there's something else there. Okay, imagine your dog's been digging that hole nonstop for 15 minutes. What if your dog did that for 30 minutes to an hour? Obviously, at this point, you'd think that the dog has something wrong with it. Well, guess what? We're all that digging dog. And there's a science to that. App developers use our brain's reward prediction errors, which are crucial to learning and therefore habit formation, to apply variable reward schedules. Variable reward schedules are often used in casinos to keep players playing. So what is a reward prediction error? It's the response in dopamine from an anticipated reward and the actual reward itself, according to Wolfram Schultz, the guy who discovered this feature in our brains. But Huberman also talks about this on Jocko's 332nd podcast episode. I'll include a link in the description. It's around the 2 hour and 37 minute mark if you want to check it out. But the reward prediction error has a few outcomes, depending on the situation. He says if we anticipate a reward and it comes we have a surge of dopamine. If we don't anticipate a reward and the reward does come, the surge is even bigger. That's why surprises are so fun. And if we expect a reward and it doesn't come, then dopamine drops. That's the disappointment we feel. Dating apps are such a good example of this. So how do app developers use this feature in our brain to keep us hooked on social media? Well, they use our anticipation and give us rewards through person-specific content at various random times. Through previous usage experience, TikTok and other platforms have learned our likes and dislikes, and we know if we keep scrolling, we'll find a picture or video that will make us laugh or spark some kind of pleasurable emotion out of us. We just don't know when that will happen. Random variable reward schedules are behind this behavior to keep scrolling. In Jocko's podcast, Huberman explains that rewards given at random times are best for motivation over time. This type of schedule is the most powerful reinforcement schedule in all mammals. It keeps us repeating a behavior over and over again. 
And the bad thing is, this is purposeful manipulation of human thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And developers are doing this mainly for the sake of selling ads to companies. The social dilemma on Netflix breaks all of this down. In the documentary, many software developers and executives from various large-scale social media companies such as Facebook were interviewed, and it was very eye-opening to see how intentional developers were about exploiting our dopamine response. According to Tristan Harris, a former design ethicist for Google and co-founder for the Center of Humane Technology, many social media companies are focused on several goals, engagement, growth, and advertising. The engagement goal is aimed to drive up our usage. The growth goal is focused on our return rate and our likelihood to invite others to use the app. And the advertising goal is focused on making money. Each of these goals are powered by algorithms, which are basically just ways in which apps use our personal data to predict our behavior. And they have a lot of our data. They kind of know way too much about us, maybe even more than some of our friends and family do, and that's scary. And because social media is social, it's adding another source of dopamine that makes app usage even more compulsive. It's an abuse of technology and information, because even if users are informed about our brain's reward pathways, it's still difficult to control our actions, even though we're aware of how social media affects us biologically. Let's use Instagram as an example. According to Haynes' article, developers have designed the app's algorithm to sometimes withhold likes after you post something. By withholding likes, the user then receives a burst of notifications later. If we see more likes at once, we're going to get a higher influx of dopamine because we crave social validation, preferably a lot of it. This formula conditions us to become habitual users. Also, an interesting fact that I learned while watching the documentary is that only the software and illegal drug industries call us, you know, the so-called customers, the users, because there's some form of addiction there. This is a problem I'm really concerned about because social media is driving up anxiety and depression, and kids and teens are particularly at risk since they tend to lack self-control. We shouldn't hold younger people accountable for overusing smartphones and social media since these apps are purposely designed to exploit our intrinsic reward systems. But anyway, if you want to learn more about dopamine, definitely check out Huberman's podcast because he really dives way deeper into that whole process than I did. He also talks about ways in which to increase dopamine for a longer period of time through various methods such as gratitude and ice baths. But I wanted to mention a Japanese philosophy to help us find a long-term sense of purpose and happiness. Japan was the fifth happiest Asian country during 2022. That's a pretty decent rating. According to a 2022 Statistica study, around 60% of people in Japan reported to be either happy or very happy about their lives. I believe this is not only because of the philosophy of Ikigai, but because of the elderly population and their lack of technological usage. Ikigai can be translated into the reason for being. It's known as the reason for getting up in the morning. According to Dr. Jeffrey Gaines's article, The Philosophy of Ikigai, Three Examples About Finding Purpose, Ikigai has roots in Japanese medicine and its basic health and wellness principles. The philosophy of Ikigai pushes us to devote our time to activities we truly enjoy, and it states through this devotion and pursuit 
a sense of well-being, meaning, purpose, and long-term satisfaction will arise. This can happen when we're in a flow state or our zone. A flow state is when our mind or body has reached its maximum capacity, when we're willingly engaged in trying to get something done that's difficult but meaningful. According to Gaines's article, it's a series of moments when we're our best selves, and it occurs when we're consistently doing things we love, that we're good at, and could potentially benefit others' lives. It's important to note that Ikigai is not only a personal pursuit, it also has this altruism ingrained into it. And as we know, social connection increases dopamine, as does doing things we love. If we look at elderly Japanese people, which make up around 29.1% of Japan's population, they tend to be super content and even joyous. And I truly believe it's because they implement ikigai into their daily lives. And they also have strong in-person social circles. In Okinawa, Japan, they have what's called a moai. It's basically a safety net, and it started hundreds of years ago as a sort of financial backup system. According to Aislinn Kodafan in our article, Moai, it served as a way to fund public works or help individuals who ran short of cash in the village. Nowadays, a Moai is a small circle of friends that are lifelong companions. They usually meet periodically for a common purpose, gossiping, supporting each other financially, and or just enjoying life together. Historically, Moai started during childhood. According to the article, groups of about five children were paired together, and they made a lifelong commitment to one another. It's practically a second family, and some Moais have lasted over 90 years. Today, about one half of Okinawans are in a Moai. Meanwhile, in the United States, people feel lucky if they get a follow back on Instagram. Social media has replaced these crucial in-person social circles. It's all about views, likes, and followers in the States, but there's really no potential for long-term happiness with social media. One CNN article entitled, American Happiness Hits Record Low, written by Harry Inton, a Gallup poll reported about 38% of Americans were satisfied in 2022. Gallup inquired about different aspects of life, such as quality of life as well as policy issues. While I don't know all of the measurements they used to get that statistic, I can't help but wonder if this had something to do with the lack of community and the crutch of social media in our society. Elderly people only make up about 16% of America's population, and I think younger people rely more heavily on technology, especially since the pandemic. We're more likely to get absorbed into this digital world, and it's harder for us to connect with people in person. Therefore, it's harder for us to form tight and long-lasting relationships. But I really think it's important to be aware about how our dopamine works, especially since we live in a world that constantly exploits it. By understanding our biology and knowing how developers design social media, we can be more in control of how we spend our time and our lives. We're not a product to be sold, and we deserve to feel motivated, happier, and fulfilled over longer periods of time. There are a lot of ways to do this, but Ikigai is a really great tool to get started on that journey. With that being said, that concludes our seventh episode of Nomadicate. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review. Again, you're listening to Nomadicate, and I'm your host, Katie DeVell. Thank you for joining me today. 
and subscribe if you want to take your global citizenship to the next level and learn even more about our beautiful big world and some of the things and people that influence it. If you'd like to see the transcript to this episode, please check out my website at nomadicate.com. Thanks for being a global citizen. Bye for now. And remember to stay curious.